The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and today my guest is Owen Hatherley. We'll be talking about the life, music and politics of Scott Walker, who died earlier this year. You can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud and Spotify. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle, as always, is at Poll Theory Other. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. It really makes a big difference in helping the show to reach new listeners. And if you would like to, you can also support the show by donating through Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Scott Walker was born Noel Scott Engel in Hamilton, Ohio in 1943 during World War II. In 1964, together with John Mouse and Gary Leeds, he formed the Walker Brothers. Moving to the UK in 1965, they had a string of hit records, including The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore and Make It Easy On Yourself. Closer to the world of light entertainment and heavily orchestrated middle-of-the-road acts than the new beat groups, they nonetheless became the subject of something akin to Beatlemania, with their gigs barely audible because of the screaming of their young fans. After three albums together and tiring of the pop treadmill, Walker went solo and released four records in quick succession. While still broadly working in a similar space to the Walker Brothers, the influence of composers such as Bartok and Sibelius became increasingly evident, and Walker's lyrics, influenced by the French singer Jacques Brel, whose songs he covered, and by the films of Scandinavian directors Zingmar Bergman and Carl Dreyer, departed from the more straightforward love songs of the Walker Brothers records. After the commercial failure of Scott Fall until the band comes in, released in 1969 and 1970, Walker made a string of middle-of-the-road cover records that failed to revive his commercial fortunes. He later disowned this work and refused to allow any of those records to be reissued. In 1975, the Walker Brothers reformed and released three albums together. The first two, No Regrets and Lines, consisted of cover versions of standard singer-songwriter material, but on Night Flights from 1978, Walker wrote four songs which, influenced by David Bowie and Brian Eno's work of the time, departed dramatically from the romanticism and lyrical realism of his earlier work. The best known of those four songs is The Electrician, the lyrics of which shift between the standpoint of a CIA torturer working in Latin America and that of his victim. Whilst the music deploys the discordant strings that were occasionally heard on Walker's more conventional early work, they're put to much more ominous and unsettling effect. The first complete album in this style emerged in 1984 with Climate of Hunter, and this was followed by a series of records that flirted with avant-garde contemporary classical music, and whose lyrical concerns ranged from the death of the Italian film director Pier Paolo Pasolini, to the execution of Benito Mussolini and his mistress Clara Patacci, and to the attacks of 9-11. Increasingly prolific in his later years, he wrote several scores for films, including Polar X and The Childhood of a Leader, 
and in 2014 he released a collaboration with the black metal band Sun. His last work was for the soundtrack of the film Vox Lux from 2018, and he passed away in March of this year. To discuss his work, I spoke to long-standing Scott Walker fan Owen Hatherley. Owen is the author of several books on political aesthetics and is the culture editor of Tribune magazine. His most recent book is The Adventures of Owen Hatherley in the Post-Soviet Space, which was published by Repeater Books last year. Unfortunately, copyright law doesn't allow me to play any of Scott Walker's music during today's episode, but in the description of the show you'll find a link to a Spotify playlist that I've made, which includes all of the songs that Owen and I talk about today, as well as many others. To sort of prepare for this interview, I was, you know, I was thinking about uh, Scott Walker's work and, and when I first uh, listened to him. And um, I think I was probably um, like 17 or 18 because I remember taking a CD out of the, the library of my sixth form college. Um, and I think it was the, the Boy Child collection, which is um, that compilation of, of his early solo work. And, you know, I think I was probably sort of made aware of him through the music press. And that's why I would have, you know, taken out of the, of the library. So, I, you know, I hadn't heard his solo stuff. I was sort of dimly aware of the Walker Brothers and I, I knew The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore, one of the, their big hits. Yep. Yeah, um, but nothing much beyond that. And um, you know, I, I still sort of recall listening to to that compilation for the first time. And in doing so, I was sort of immediately aware that I was listening to something that was part of a musical tradition that I had, you know, previously not had any engagement with, didn't really know, and also that I thought was sort of vaguely embarrassing. So you know, at the sort of at the more credible end of it. It was kind of, you know, crooners like Frank Sinatra. And I suppose coming out of a more rock and roll t- tradition, you have the sort of the ballads of people like Elvis and also Roy Orbison. But then at the more sort of middle of the road end of that spectrum, it's it's Jack Engelbert Jones, Humperdinck. exactly Engelbert Humperdinck and Andy Williams and all these sorts of sorts of people. And so, you know, that sort of journey that, that Scott Walker makes from the world of pop and of, of, of light entertainment to the sort of almost avant-garde uh, atonality of, of some of his later work you know it's, it's become mm. a bit of a cliche and and um, a lot of people have sought to try and debunk that picture a little bit by pointing up some of the continuities in his work whether that's sort of um, yeah. you know the sort of consistently dark lyrical subject matter or the or the classical influences that creep in quite early to some of uh, Walker's first compositions for the uh, for the Walker brothers um, yeah I, th- I thought we could maybe start by chatting a bit about how you first encountered his music and, and what you make of that standard story of his uh, sort of career arc? Um, as two very separate questions. Um, I suppose the, the first time I came across Scott Walker's work was reading Select magazine in 1995 when I was around the time Tilt came out, I would have been 13 or 14. Mm. And um, of course, they were horrified by it, like absolutely horrified. <laughs> and they had this panel of like Britpop stars plus Mark Almond to kind of talk about it. And to give him credit, which I don't often do, um, Damon Albarn seemed to take it the most seriously. And the rest were just like, where are the tunes? Um, you know, as if like Night Flights and Climate Fanta hadn't happened. You know, it was just like, why is he not doing um, Montague Terrace in Blue? Who does he think he is? Hmm. What is this art wank? And that really seemed to fit with the mid-90s and the way things uh, were. And, of course, at the time I was listening to lots of Britpop, so I wasn't particularly bothered. And then a while after that, I remember watching – I can't remember what it was. It was a a TV documentary about – probably people talk about their favourite songs or something. And it had Jarvis Cocker talking about Plastic Palace people. 
and describing you know these kind of little sketches of of, of everyday life and whatever the plastic palace is i sort of assume it's a sort of tower block of some sort um and the sort of minutiae of the details and and the slight surrealism of it and thinking that sounds really good and then finding a copy of scott one in a second-hand record shop in southampton Mm. and going from there really and sort of going one record sort of forward from there to four and then on to night flights and till and so on so um so that's how it happened for me, which I think is probably similar to what happened for a lot of people. Um, but in terms of the shift between eras, you know, I think a lot of people nowadays, critics and academics in particular, love to sort of do debunking the idea of a revolutionary break in anything. Hmm. And they'd like to do it in culture as much as they like to do it in politics. And it's so boring. It's such a boring <laughs> way of looking at anything. And, you know, yeah, you can find... Um, there's a lot in Scott 3 that's in the Walker Brothers, and there's a certain amount in Climate of Hunter that's in Scott 4, and there's a certain amount of, you know, sort of sex and death and politics and lyrics on his first few solo albums. But the break in Night Flights, I think, is as close to an absolute as you can get. You know, the that the, the, he just wouldn't have been able to write something like The Electrician 10 years earlier. He wasn't that kind of writer, and something has sort of happened to happened to him as a writer in between and the lyricist in night flights and the electrician and and those songs is quite obviously i think the same lyricist in the drift and bish bosh and soothed and so on um so i do think there's a really really sharp break and and Mm. and i think people downplaying it are being dull Mm. i mean i suppose you, you could sort of make a distinction between debunking the work and and trying to identify possible threads between the earlier work and the later work and yeah. I, I suppose in yeah. terms of things like night flights i mean the, the the obvious thing that is pointed to is those atonal strings that you hear in something like um it's raining today from scott yeah. three yeah. which again is, yeah. is there in the electrician and i suppose yeah. the political concerns as well i mean the electrician is about um you know a cia torturer working in in South America, um, yeah. but there are there are already sort of political concerns in the in the earlier work as well. There are, but they're narratives. You know, something mm. like Hero of the War or The Old Man's Back Again, which I which I like a lot. Like talking about the difference in these things isn't saying one thing is better than the other because I don't think one is better than the other. Mm. I think they're very different. Um, and the shift between that and this kind of splintered syntax and non sequiturs and sort of body horror that comes into his lyrics is really, really sharp. And the other thing is that they just cease to be narratives. Um, you know, it's a really straightforward like shift from being a realist writer to a modernist writer. Um, and, you know, there's nothing wrong, nothing to be ashamed of in that. Like, I don't see why people are sort of keen to... Um, downplay that hmm. i suppose i mean um i mean this is on sort of a, a different period of his work the sort of oh. um the the 70s work after till the band comes in where he starts doing these quite sort of schlocky uh, cover albums yeah. um but there's an article in that collection that um, The Wire put together by Ian Penman where he tries oh. to sort of tease out the more sort of potentially subversive qualities of, of, of middle-of-the-road music. And, and I wonder if some of that um, attempt to uh, 
see more of a direct line between the earlier stuff and the later stuff is actually to say this earlier stuff is actually really interesting and there's actually uh, we we shouldn't see it all as kind of you know saccharine and and uh, oh no no and I, and I don't I really don't I mm. think it's um, I mean well I mean I would make an exception. <laughs> the, um, you know, for the, the the stuff that he's talking about in that specific essay. Which yeah, I mean, is, the, the essay is so much better than the records, to my mind. Yeah, I remember uh, literally, literally because of that essay, I went out and bought like um, <laughs> stretch. You know, we we had it all in the movie goer, and you know, the movie goer is all right. I, yeah. I think he's. I think that's totally a case for the movie goer. Um, it's quite odd, um, and a lot of them are really surprising choices apart from the godfather theme um uh, but the other two are terrible like <laughs> just mind-bogglingly bad <laughs> you know the idea that anyone needed a scott walker country album just you know incredible um so yeah it's but on the other hand all the other stuff that you know that that, that every that, that, that everyone does like you know scott one to four mm. and the walker brothers singles until the band comes in these are light entertainment in a way you know they're not um they're not rock music Mm. um and you know if one were to talk about continuities that would be one of them the fact that like he seems to hate hippies throughout. Um, there's a great bit in, yeah. in one of the interviews where he's just like talking about like how lost he was in the seventies. Just like if you weren't wearing their uniform, you know they weren't interested. And there obviously wasn't a place for someone of his preoccupations in in seventies until the late seventies, which is why Night Flights happens. Um, but I think that. Um, yeah, that one of the things that makes a lot of those songs so moving is the fact that they. They are this combination of like Jean Genet and Engelbert Humperdinck. Like mm. that's kind of why they're thrilling. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, he sort of gets taken up, doesn't he, by the the sort of post punk generation, um, who, who probably sort of shared his disdain for the hippies. I mean, there's that compilation that Julian Coe puts together in the in the early eighties, isn't there, which um, sort of leads to a bit of a you know sort of mini Scott Walker revival. Yeah. But also that that does come a bit out of them noticing night flights as well. There's a wonderful bit in Head On in, in Julian Coates' autobiography, like talking about all of these like Liverpool and Manchester post-punk hipsters like chancing upon night flights, just being absolutely blown away. And there's a similar story about Bowie, like mm. finding it like, you know, after recording Low and Heroes and just being speechless. And and the interesting thing is that they then go move on to revive the sixties stuff. But there's no real attempt to emulate this thing that he does in 1978 because he's rather bizarrely given the context, like gone so far out that, you know, none of them really know how to follow him. Brian Eno more or less says exactly that, doesn't he? And, um, yeah. In that documentary about about Scott Walker that came out a while ago now, I suppose you know he's, he says something like uh, it sort of dismissively refers to all these sort of new bands who sound like either Roxy Music or, or Talking Heads. And, and I mean, as someone that produced Coldplay, he really isn't you know he's in glass house <laughs> throwing stones. But, but yeah, that's true enough. Well, maybe, maybe he would include himself in that in that yeah. category. I mean, in a, in a funny sort of way, you could you could maybe also include Scott Walker in that category because I sort of. You know, if I had to choose a period which I sort of had the strongest attachment to, it would 
it would sort of be a toss-up between sort of Scott one to four, and uh, maybe maybe till the band comes in as well. Uh, but also that middle period of, of night flights and climate of Hunter, and I sort of just dearly wish there was more of that middle period than there is. Yeah, there's um, that like half recorded album with Eno, isn't there? That no one. That, that the, the never, no never surface, yeah, yeah. and because it seems to me, it's still that's still a period where he he is still doing pop songs in in some sense. I mean, he you know sort of touchingly mm. continues mm. to describe the extremely difficult stuff on on the drift and as songs. You know, he says, "Well, I didn't." Well, last yeah, I, that's the thing. I mean, and, and that's I think one of the things that kind of makes them interesting, the drift and until especially, is that they're not actual avant-garde classical music. Mm. You know, they. That their pop songs of a very very weird kind. They don't they don't quite fit into you know they're, they're not ligety or whatever. They're, you know they are something that comes out of a sort of pop music or rock music lineage in a way, just warped quite severely. Mm. I'm very very fond of those two. I I'll admit to having listened to Bish Bosh about twice. Sure. I think that was yeah. that 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 was the one that kind of broke me, but. You know. <laughs> yeah, I think I think They've my got to eventually, haven't they? Uh, yeah, I think uh, for everyone, it's just a question of of where where you are in the Scott Walker timeline. I mean, I think I'm mm. probably um, I enjoy. The, well, it, it seems weird to say. I wouldn't exactly say I enjoy the drift, but I certainly get something out of listening to it um, like once a year. But right. yeah, yeah, at, at Christmas. Um, <laughs> but um, I think with Tilt, because there's kind of more conventionally m- melodic material there, I probably you know I probably gravitate towards that more than I do. I mean, I think Tilt Tilt is the masterpiece, I think. It's the single Mm. thing. I think in 50 years, that'll be the one. Um, And it brings them all together, I think. It is quite strange, that thing of of people like Mark Mark Holman um, being, you know, just sort of horrified by by Tilt because it just, maybe it's because of hearing the later work, but it doesn't seem as difficult now as perhaps it did at the time. It's partly because of the later work and partly just because of what a conservative period that was. And I think, Mm. I think he benefited, if you look at how prolific he became in the last few years of his life, you know, there's, 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 there's three albums, there's how many, three soundtracks, there's the ballet piece, you know, that the lyrics book, you know, that he has, He's very prolific for someone that, like, up to that point had done something every 15 years. And it sort of suggests that the reason why it took so long for him to do everything was partly because of how the music industry worked. That he'd have sort of managers and record labels that were kind of hoping he would do, you know, a collaboration with Blur or whatever. And literally in the 80s, he does do a collaboration with Mark Knopfler. Um, You know, and that's what they're kind of hoping for. And then he signs for 4AD, and you end up in this kind of musical infrastructure that we have now that's very much, you know, sort of niche marketing oriented, where actually you can do something like that and make a living off it. it, Hmm. But it's, you know, in in your specific corner, and you're shoved into your corner to do it, but you can do it. And I think that's probably the... The really big difference. I mean, g- going back to you know his sort of position in in you know sort of middle of the road big band um, sort of orchestration and and light entertainment because obviously he you know he had a TV show for a time on on BBC One I, I mm. think um, you know he does sort of cut such a singular figure because although he sort of disdains the hippies and and seems quite apart from the counterculture and. I was reading a, a biography of him recently, and, and you know, people said this. He was of the pop world. He, he wasn't part of the the underground. He wasn't mm, p- part yeah. of that kind of yeah. kind of scene. And you know, somebody like Paul McCartney, who now we would think of as a much more kind of middle of the road kind of a guy, was far more immersed in you know listening to um, avant garde music and, and being part of that kind of modernist scene than 
than Scott Walker was. Um, yeah. And I found myself thinking about the recording of, uh, well, the, the mixing of, uh, of the Let It Be album, which was um, done by uh, Phil Spector. And, yeah. you know, Paul McCartney was absolutely horrified by what Phil Spector did because he laid it on all these kind of uh, schlocky uh, strings, very much, of, you know, of, of the type of, of stuff that you hear more on those middle-of-the-road records of the time. And, you know, he was so uh, contrary to that whole sort of relatively austere kind of uh, populist sort of modernism that the Beatles were, were going for. Mm. Um, that, yeah, it's just, it's just a very odd position that he, he seemed to occupy. And quite unique. I mean, I'm trying to think of people that are in that sort of showbiz world who, you know, but some of that stuff, you know, stands up very, very well. I mean, one of the people that he gets compared to a bit, which I think makes some sense, is Dusty Springfield. Mm, like, yeah. You know, the, those kind of like the big Walker Brothers singles, that's probably what they're close to is that level of like, and they're fantastic. You know, they're brilliant. Mm. Um but they are they would have been seen at the time as being quite as being relatively conservative um and i think part, probably lots of like the rediscovery of scott walker was entirely about you know being able to get yourself or sort of the counterculture's later iterations getting themselves in a place where something that seemed that square could um could be cool you know um something that was that sort of showbiz because there'd been such sort of opposed worlds. But, um, and partly also like he obviously kind of knew what he was doing to a degree when he was sort of, you know, working with strings and so on because of the fact that he wasn't making rock music. So, you know, the, 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 the strings on long and winding roads sound terrible, you know, they're awful. <laughs> um, and the strings on, you know, something like Big Louise are extraordinary. Um, sure. Because I think he's able to have a conversation with the arrangers there that, you know, that, that, that would make sense, um, which the Beatles didn't <laughs> at that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose also there's, I mean, uh, the, the Walker Brothers stuff often gets compared to Phil Spector's Productions and the, you know the whole yeah, the whole yeah. wall of sound thing, which which seems a real red herring in, in a way because the whole point of what Spectre was doing was you know sort of layering on overdub after overdub, um, and you get this kind of um, sort of indistinct kind of music where you can't quite tell what's playing what and what instruments are on yeah. which track. Whereas with the, uh, the Walker Brothers records and with Scott Walker's stuff, you absolutely can. You know, it's a big, huge sound. It's you know it sort of really sort of dominates, but it's it's clear what everything is. Yeah, that's that's true. I think and maybe it's just the, the way that the arrangers were working was kind of different. Um, and again, lots of these people, like you know, um, who's the, the three people that do the arrangements on this record? Was it Pete and I, and the other one, and Angela Morley, who was Wally Star at the time? And these people were doing like TV soundtracks. You know, they were really light entertainment. They weren't doing little symphonies for the kids. Um, and again, that kind of slight squareness is probably part of part of why it's good. Mm. Um, they were more square than Spectre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we, we've touched on Walker's politics a, a little bit. I mean, he's you know he's clearly not um, a protest singer in any sort of conventional sense, and no. uh, you know, as, as we've talked about, quite disdainful of the, of the counterculture. But there's also that thing of it's it's sort of hard to imagine him existing 
without the existence of the counterculture, even if he's sort of reacting against it. And clearly, you know, he was a, he was opposed to the Vietnam War, supported Bobby Kennedy's presidential candidacy in, in 1968. And with things like Hero of the War and um, The Old Man's Back Again, you know, he's writing about contemporary political issues. Um in terms of the sort of the later work, I mean, it's 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 a mu- it's much harder to discern any particular political standpoint. But his sort of preoccupation with fascism and and, and atrocities, I mean, it, it made me think of that general political pessimism that you see in in, in the sort of um, post the sort of nineteen sixty eight period that, that someone like Enzo Traverso talks about, where in so much of, of popular culture resistance and anti-fascism that's tied to a sort of utopian vision just vanishes and it's replaced with this focus just on the victims who are you know often portrayed sort of in, a, in quite a passive sense and and I think you know maybe that's a misreading of his later work but that's kind of what I find myself taking from it and it's it, you know it's probably what puts me off it to some extent I don't, I don't know how you find that I I think that's fair I, I it doesn't put me off it I mean it would put me off it if it was journalism Mm. But it doesn't put me off it as as as, as records. But um, yeah, I, I want my records to agree with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I mean, insofar as yeah, that's absolutely what's going on in them. They're obsessed with torture um, and people and torturable bodies. Like that's absolutely what 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 runs through them. And. Yeah, I think I, I think that's very fair. I think that's quite a difficult critique to respond to. Mm. Um, and you know, it, it's not an accident that this begins with you know a song about the CIA torturing people on an album which, incidentally, has a song dedicated to uh, to BHL to 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 uh, Bernard Henri Levy. No, really, um, I didn't know that. Which which if song? If you look at the um, sleeve notes of uh, Night Flights. A uh, fat mama kick, rather bizarrely, is dedicated to BHL, and I've got absolutely no <laughs> idea why, because um, it's such an oblique song. Like I've got absolutely no idea what's going on in in that song. Um, it's sure. one of my favourites, but I've got no idea what's going on. Um, but and I don't know if BF, BHL did either. Um, Nineteen seventy eight. Obviously, what what BHL means is you know the sort of French Maoists discover the Gulag thing, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Which you know, for anyone from political tradition, which knew about the Gulag before 1975, always comes across as a bit jejune. But um, mm. but yeah, that's that's what that is, and that would sort of fit with you know the the kind of one could sort of see those songs as being about human rights in a way, couldn't you? Mm. If you were being really mean. Um, on the other hand, you know, one of the various accounts of where um, the electrician comes from and where lots of Tilt comes from is um, Scott Walker reading uh, Noam Chomsky. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of this until seeing an article making that claim just after he died. There was Rob Young claimed this, yeah, and, and oh, Rob, okay, and he would know. Hmm. So, um, and that figures like I think a lot of the references in in those songs to people like Pasolini and Rosa Luxemburg. They're, they're, it's a very kind of um, left-wing melancholy list in a way. I, I think he's he seems very clearly to be writing from, uh, I think, a, a left-wing perspective, but also being enormously um, resistant to the possibility of it being of any of these things being protest songs. Mm, yeah, um, but I, I I think like you know that um, 
tilt especially like um there's a a, a guy on um, twitter who really should write a book who referred to tilt as being an album about the pax americana and its and its results and i think that's as good a reading as any um that you know so much of it like bolivia 95 and these sorts of songs and farmer in the city like can be read i think quite easily as songs about lives that are destroyed by by neoliberalism and, and that kind of mm. sense of sort of of of, of the, the sort of disappointment that runs through so many of those songs like farmer in the city i've sort of, sort of readers you know a lot of the song, especially that song but a lot of them you can kind of read as being these sort of laments of crush revolutionaries and that one you know is obviously reasonably explicitly about the murder of um you know a, a writer and filmmaker that that um and, considered and himself to be a communist course. yeah, yeah. considered himself yeah. a communist so um and of course that's then connected with loads of things that you don't get in those in those things at all such as the the sort of aspect of sort of body horror and the obsession with sort of uh, uh, one of the essays in that wire book describes it as being i think rob young rob young's essay describes it as being about the links between politics and love which i think is a very polite way of putting it they're usually about mm. the links between politics and fairly unpleasant sex um well i mean the, the electrician has a sort of obvious on, kind yeah, of sadomasochistic uh, i mean exactly. i was going to say subtext but it's just right on, not, there on the surface <laughs> and, and bish bosh and Seuss and the drift are absolutely full of this yeah um so yeah i think i'd, I'd love to know a bit more about because obviously he keeps these things so so close to kept these things so close to his chest like what his politics actually were and whether he had any kind of involvement because there's they sound a lot of the time like someone that once you know cared a great deal and is sort of you know recording the crushing of something you've been listening to politics theory other if you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.